Welcome to the McGuire Iron Podcast. My name is Brian Cooper. I am the Director of Business Development at McGuire Iron and your host for this podcast. At McGuire Iron, we've been helping to store and protect quality water for over 100 years. On this episode, our guest is Shelly Roberts, the CEO of the Idaho Rural Water Association. After more than 20 years of working as a certified public accountant in the Treasure Valley, Shelly accepted the responsibility of Chief Executive Officer for a nonprofit, Idaho Rural Water Association. Her responsibilities include administration of several water and wastewater related grants and contracts, whose purpose is to provide technical assistance and training to water and wastewater systems in Idaho. In this role, Shelly is active in a variety of industry committees and working groups. She works closely with Idaho DEQ water and wastewater groups to ensure work completed by IRWA staff is consistent with state law and DEQ rules and procedures. Shelley also works on state and federal legislative issues affecting the industry and is a member of several committees for the National Rural Water Association. She works closely with the Idaho congressional delegation to educate our representatives about the key water and wastewater needs in the state to secure funding for continued assistance for Idaho communities. All right, Shelly Roberts, thank you for joining us today on the McGuire Iron Podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. So let's start with, for those who don't know anything about Idaho and the Rural Water Association, who is the Idaho Rural Water Association and why were you founded? When did that happen? Give us the backstory of the organization. So Idaho Rural Water Association is a 501c3 nonprofit corporation We were incorporated in 1987 to provide technical assistance and training to nonprofit rural water systems with a population under 10,000. And we have stayed pretty true to that original um, filing, Um, tweaked it just a little bit here and there, but um, we're excited that we're celebrating our 35th anniversary this year. That's great. Um, talk a little bit about that. I mean, 35 years as an association. What what changes has the organization seen? You said you've stayed pretty close to that original charter, but what does it look like over the years? Well, as our communities have grown, um, so has the, the needs that our membership has expressed in needing our help with. So, We do still primarily serve populations under 10,000, but we've also expanded a lot of our training and legislative networking to communities over 10,000. So initially only uh, board members had to represent a community under 10,000. We do now have one board seat available to be represented by a community over 10,000. So since we're talking about your membership, who are members of Idaho Rural Water? What does that look like? Because I know you have different membership types for different groups outside of just your direct members. So our direct members are technically any legal entity whose purpose is to provide drinking water and wastewater services. Or we also find that federal or state law require an entity to provide those same services that are incidental to their general operations. So, for example, direct members generally are a municipality, a water sewer district, a nonprofit HOA, like a 
a small community that doesn't connect to a municipality, so they provide drinking water and sewer services. And that second group that's incidental to its operating would be, say, a school or a dairy where, by law, they have to provide public drinking water. So those are the other types of direct members. Gotcha. Very good. Yeah. Then associate members are those businesses that are generally aligned with the drinking water and wastewater industry, like engineers or pump and pipe suppliers. Those are the the two largest type of um, members. And then we have individual members that don't fall into those two categories, but they support our mission and purpose. A lot of times those are retired individuals that still want to be associated with and support the organization. And then we have the support members, which is basically anyone else that doesn't fit a category or they don't necessarily want all of the direct member benefits. So some of those larger communities, over 10,000, support rural water, support the state, but they don't necessarily want all of the direct member benefits. For example, they still will get training discounts, but they're not eligible for scholarships or to serve on the board of directors. Gotcha. So now that we've, you know, understand a little bit more about your membership types, what are all of the benefits that Idaho Rural Water provide to its members? I mean, you touched on it a little bit when we first started the conversation, but let's dig in a little bit in some of the areas that you provide uh, services and assistance for your members. Well, there are quite a lot of benefits, probably more than we would want to (laughs) talk about Yeah, Yeah, we'll let you just hit the high ones. They're the really important ones. How's that? Yeah, I will do that. And um, so some of the member benefits that I feel are most important to our members out there are the legislative representation, the technical resources, and the legal counsel. And oftentimes entities don't necessarily understand the importance of the legislative representation. There's a lot of that that goes on behind the scenes, but I believe it's by by far one of the most important. And Idaho Rural Water does a good job of representing legislative needs on the local level. National Rural Water provides that representation on the national level. So there's a lot going on all the time in terms of legislative. Um, In terms of what we're doing here locally, we have attendance at many decision-making related meetings like the DEQ board meetings, the Idaho Drinking Water Advisory Committee, the Idaho Water Utility Council, the Underground Utility Board meetings. There's just a lot of those. Oh, another one that many of our members are familiar with is the um, operator licensure group, um, now referred to as DOPL, which is Division of Professional Licensing. So we listen to hear what the potential rule changes are and things coming down the pike and then advocate for our members to provide the best resources and limit unnecessary regulations. 
That's a great point you just made about regulation. I mean, over the years, regulation has changed. And so it's, you know, talk a little bit more about how important it is that you guys are on the front lines of that to make sure that people are looking out for um, clean drinking water, but not being overly too regulatory. I mean, there's a, there's a balance to be had there, I'm sure. Yeah, and most of that starts at the national level. Um, there isn't um, much, you know, by, by law, Idaho has opted not to require regulation that's greater than the federal requirements. So that's where we really rely on national rural water, and they are participating in committee meetings and hearings. They are asked to serve on work groups all the time in terms of upcoming regulation right now. Some of the hot topics are uh, lead and copper changes, uh, the PFAS and related contaminants. So National Rural Water is testifying on a regular basis on Capitol Hill for essentially all of Idaho's communities, too. How does that look on a local level? You know, you talk about National Rural Water taking care of regulation at the national level. But I'm sure that your organization does a lot of lobbying, especially at the local level when it comes to funding of projects or money that goes into infrastructure just from the state level. Yes. So this last legislative session, the significant piece of funding was the American Rescue Plan Act, the ARPA funds, which there is a great potential that much of that money can be in the form of grants, which historically, we've started to see a trend away from grants and more low interest rate loans, which the low interest rate loans are helpful, but we have seen so much increase in the cost of infrastructure that it's becoming more and more difficult to fund these projects. So in this last legislative session, Idaho Rural Water spent a tremendous amount of time down at the Capitol talking to decision makers and really focusing on educating them about the level of funding, the, the, the need that we are seeing in Idaho. And the numbers really speak for themselves. DEQ generally receives about 75 applications a year for infrastructure funding. This year with our communities, understanding that there was ARPA money available, DEQ received close to 275 applications for $1.4 billion. And the majority of these were shovel-ready projects. So that was already what was in the queue. That doesn't even include the projects that are just beginning to be thought about by Idaho um, councils and, and boards. So for $1.4 billion of request, the Idaho legislature allocated $300 million of ARPA funds, which sadly fell far below what was needed, but DEQ is doing the best it can to allocate the funds available with the guidance the legislature provided, which the legislator, legislature asked them to focus on systems with the greatest level of need, but the least ability to pay. And I think this is a great point to talk about Idaho and the makeup of Idaho. 
Idaho is seeing an explosion in growth, and I'm sure that's putting a lot of pressure on these members of yours to expand, upgrade, do all that. And I'm sure that's where, you know, those trillions of dollars are coming in for requests. Yes, and I think this last session where we saw the request come in far in excess of what was available for funding will, I I guess in one respect, it did draw attention to the need in our state where previously water and sewer wasn't really even a topic at the legislature. So we will continue to advocate for increased state investment in water and sewer infrastructure, because at the end of the day, water and sewer infrastructure is what helps support our economic prosperity. People are coming to Idaho because it is a wonderful place to live, and there are a lot of opportunities to be successful and enjoy the environmental benefits that we have in our state. But without a strong and sustainable infrastructure, none of that is going to be available to people. I think that's a great point. And it's you know great that you guys are doing that lobbying. And like you said, it's education because people don't think about when they turn on the faucet where that comes from or when they take a shower where that wastewater goes until it's a problem and they don't have it. Yeah. And I think... Um, In our industry, perhaps that's one of our greatest disservices is that we have done such a phenomenal job of providing our services, but have done it very quietly behind the scenes and need to become a better advocate for the work that we're doing every day. So we've talked a little bit about that legislative lobbying piece that your group is doing. Let's talk about some of that technical, managerial, financial part of it. Like, What does that technical training look like for operators on the wastewater and the water side in Idaho. What are you guys doing there? Well, one thing that I do want to clarify, uh, there's a common misunderstanding that you have to be a member of Idaho Rural Water to benefit from that technical assistance. And that is not the case. So I want to make sure that every community in Idaho that is a nonprofit eligible for rural development funding knows that they have access to our technical assistance. And what that looks like in the form of our circuit riders and our wastewater technicians is we are there to help provide whatever service the system needs. And it's really broad because the needs are broad. Sometimes it's just a little bit of research and guidance on how to resolve a particular problem and help with troubleshooting. Sometimes it's networking. Um, It's not unusual for our field staff to hear about a challenge or a need in one area, and then they go to the next town and and find the, the right solution. For example, we had a community that was upgrading some of their equipment, and we were able to take those pieces of equipment and distribute them to three other communities that couldn't afford them. So that networking piece is a tremendous benefit. But other types of technical assistance just in general is help with leak detection. So if a community is seeing um, a line with uh, that's been depressurized a bit or the, the pumping has 
shot up to an unusual level, then our staff can go out and help isolate that leak so that it's not um, looking for a needle in a haystack. We can kind of pinpoint that better for them. We can help with line locating, sludge judging, helping with proper management of the sewer lagoons. And sometimes it's as simple as assisting with confined space entry. It's not unusual for our most rural communities to have just one person. And when that one person needs to go down into a manhole or into a ditch, sometimes it's just being that extra person there to help with the safety side of the industry. And I think these are all amazing things that your team does. And I think you were right earlier when you said, these are the things that you and your team do in the background that nobody notices, but are vital to providing these services to people across the state of Idaho. Yes, and keeping people safe. I can't um, overemphasize the importance of things like the confined space entry. We've we've lost too many operators trying to do it themselves. So just having that helping hand um, also helps tremendously. Let's talk a little bit about training. So you provide all this in-the-field training, but what are the things you're doing for operators to say certified? Because a lot of people don't realize that water and wastewater operators have to have CEUs and so many of them to keep their license, to keep providing these services to these communities. Yeah, so probably first and foremost, one of the most important trainings we provide is to help people pass the exam. So we provide the certification review classes um, to kind of help them give those um, updates and refreshers before they head in to take the exam. Once they have those exams under their belt, then we try to provide regular routine classes to keep people up to date, Um, but also importantly is the new and um, the new technologies, updates on changing regulations. So we provide over uh, 60, 60 days of training a year in addition to two technical conferences. So we host one conference in the northern part of the state and one conference in the southern part of the state. And one of the best parts of those conferences are the networking opportunities not only to meet with industry vendors on products that are available, but just professional to professional. And our conferences are very, very popular and also an opportunity to get those same CEUs. That's great. We talked a little bit earlier about funding, and you've been at Rural Water for the past 11 years. What are some of the changes you've seen, and what are some of the things you're seeing moving forward, whether it's workforce, regulation, training, funding. I just want to talk a little bit about what are some of the other things that are going on and what are some of the key things you see moving forward that Idaho Rural Water has has its finger on to make sure that these services continue to be provided for members across the state? Probably the biggest challenge that we're seeing in the industry right now is the workforce. So we are very proud of our apprenticeship program Our technical assistants, our circuit writers, that will always be core to our organization. But in terms of meeting the most challenging needs right now, it's it's that workforce. Um, 
the growth that we're seeing in our state um, so that our communities are needing more operators. We've got the aging operators. If you think about when operators kind of came into existence was partially due to the Safe Drinking Water Act and the Clean Water Act and needing to follow rules and regulations and these water operators evolved out of those local communities. A lot of those folks are are looking at retiring now, and there just aren't enough people that know about the industry, that know about the profession. So we're drawing people into the profession, and then those that are coming in, providing them with the knowledge to be successful in their careers. So what does the apprenticeship program actually look like in Idaho? I know this was an effort started by National Rural Water, but it seems like each state does it a little differently. What does it look like in Idaho, and how are you guys attacking that problem? Well, it's interesting because it does look a little different in each state, and we have seen changes in our program as we've learned what our members need and what what form of education is most beneficial for our community. So right now, so that we can meet the diverse geographic area of our state, we have a very robust curriculum. So 288 hours of training for our apprenticeship program over the course of two years, and we've broken it into semesters. So they start in September and then go through Um, early November, then they have a break for the holiday, and then they start in January and go through end of March or early April because what we found is when the season starts to change, that's when our public works folks need to get out and get projects done. So we really capitalize on those cooler months where it's tough to do work out in the field to provide that key education. How has the program been received? How many students have you had go through? And what are the, you know, if you can give us an example of a success story of how this program is really making a difference. Well, it started out slow because um, people were curious and interested, but not quite sure what it was going to look like. So in our first group, we had about seven people join. We now have just celebrated our fourth graduation, so we're really excited about that. And then in our last learning cohort, we start um, each learning group that we refer to as a cohort in September. We had close to 30, and in our upcoming one, we're hoping to exceed those 30 individuals. So it's really growing in popularity, and The cities that have sponsored the apprentices are seeing such strong knowledge come out of these these folks that have gotten this education. They're passing exams at a very high rate. Uh, They are showing more confidence that some cities have said, we're just going to put all of our new staff right into this apprenticeship program because they're seeing such strong success come out of the apprentices that have gone through the program and are going through the program. When you guys are working through this program, what does it look like for the future? I mean, to sustain the level of services that are being provided by your members, 
30 is an amazing number. Is that kind of like, okay, we need to keep it at 30? Does it need to continue to grow? What what capacity does your group have to handle training for that many people? Well, I think that will largely be dependent on the funding. Um, I have struggled with this question. It's It's a new apprenticeship. It is different in some of the more traditional models of apprenticeship like electrician and plumbers that has those programs have been around for years and are largely funded through union dues which we do not have and in terms of tuition it would be challenging to have these communities pay a high level of tuition so i'm hopeful that some of the the funding that Department of Labor is investing in continued workforce development will allow us to at least get a strong foothold as we move forward, like the next 10 years, so that we can, we can find that balance. Because another difference is we don't have the numbers um, that the general contractors would have in terms of apprenticeship. So we do have a need for operators, but not the same number that you would see in framers and plumbers. And so that's going to be a balance that we'll have to explore as we go forward. Well, it's great that you're getting that program off the ground because, you know, rural water, every rural water executive I talk to, workforce and funding are kind of the two top things. Is there anything else that's going on in Idaho outside of those really big topics right now that are, you know, you're excited about or your your team is finding successes in challenging situations? I'm really excited about seeing how technical assistance shifts as the needs in the state shift. For example, with the lead inventory requirements in terms of the lead and copper rule revisions, I'm hopeful that we can provide help with asset management in terms of uh, providing assistance in mapping of systems and then learning how to identify and explore what the makeup of the pipe is. So I'm just excited to see where the industry grows as life continues to evolve. Um, We've talked a lot about the growth in Idaho and it just seems like things continue to change, which presents a challenge, but it also presents opportunities. How has your staff been nimble through this? I mean, we've we've gone through a pandemic now, and now you're seeing a huge influx of new residents in Idaho. I mean, that's a lot to go through in the last three years. How has how has this challenged your staff, or how have you guys looked at the world differently to address these challenges and and get through them in a positive way? The challenge has varied depending on the type of staff. You know, you've got the the field staff that continue to provide that technical assistance, and they've seen changes in the people that they're serving. So the people change, but the position and the need may not change. We certainly are seeing more requests than we ever have before. The need continues to increase in demand. And in terms of changes that's most obvious to me, especially in how we reacted to the pandemic, has been in how we deliver our training. So similar to many training organizations during the pandemic, we 
quickly learned how to provide virtual training. And fortunately, most of the people on the other end were patient with that process, but we got pretty good at it. And now we're providing more training in a number of different ways than we ever have before. So we have those folks that say, in-person training is the way for me. That's the only way I want to receive training. So we're providing that just the way that we had in the past. We're also continuing to provide virtual training because surprisingly, we had about 50-50. 50% of our members said, we really like in-person training. Please bring it back as soon as possible, which we did. And then we have the others that said, hey, this works great for me because I don't have to take a day to travel and sit in class, and it's a lot more cost-effective for the community. But the other thing that I'm really excited about is our blended learning. So we're able to take both those that want to experience the in-person classroom training but then also invite in virtual attendees. And we have the technology so that we can seamlessly integrate those physically in attendance with those attending remotely. So it's really exciting to see the type of training evolve and to reach more people than we've ever been able to reach before. No, I think that's great that your team has been flexible and you know, are finding solutions that work for your members. Is there anything else, Shelley, that you want to talk about or anything exciting going on at uh, Idaho Rural Water before we let you go? Yeah, one of the things that I really wanted to highlight that I'm really proud of in terms of flexibility and meeting member, member needs is as part of that virtual training that we were rather catapulted into during the pandemic, we evolved with a new concept that we call Webinar Wednesdays. So during the pandemic, when no one could really get out and travel safely, we offered one-hour training during the lunch hour that was free to our members. And it has been very popular, so much so that now that we're moving out of the pandemic, we're still offering that once a month. And it's a great way for people to earn CEUs without leaving home, but also a great way to introduce new concepts and hot topics where we can just do a short snippet of training instead of a full day of training. And it's free, so people can just kind of pop on and see if it's something they're interested in. And some of the topics that we've covered, it's been a wide variety, but things from cybersecurity to emerging contaminants, talking about PFAS and related contaminants, rule changes with the lead and copper rule. We just ended a, a three-part series on lead and copper, and even just fun classes like math tips and tricks. So that's been a tremendous success and I think a wonderful member benefit. Well, Shelley, I appreciate everything you and your team are doing for your members in the state of Idaho. So thank you very much for joining us today on the McGuire Iron Podcast. Thank you for the opportunity. Remember, you can always connect with us by going to our website, mcguireiron.com. You can ask questions by sending us an email at info at or you can follow or reach out to us on any of our social media platforms. 
We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thank you for joining us on the McGuire Iron Podcast. <laughs>